Welcome to Marin Costello Radio, where we have intentional conversations with impactful people, your weekly dose of motivation, inspiration, and entrepreneurship. Join me as we explore the ins and outs of building and running a business, interview leaders across all industries, and find the common denominator beneath it all. This is Marin Costello Radio. Ladies and gents, we have such an epic guest on the show today. Blythe Hill is the CEO and founder of the Dressember Foundation, an anti-trafficking nonprofit organization. Through their annual campaign, thousands of people across the world commit to wearing a dress or tie for the month of December as a way to raise awareness and funding for anti-trafficking programs. Since 2013, Dressember advocates have raised $15 million and resourced dozens of anti-trafficking programs across the U.S. and the world. Dressember has received press attention from the likes of Forbes, Glamour, InStyle, Good Housekeeping, Cosmopolitan, and The Today Show, among many others. In 2019, Blythe was also named one of InStyle's 50 Badass Women. Congratulations. She currently lives in Southern California with her husband, son, and their dog, Friday. Please help me welcome my sweet friend of many, many years, Blythe Hill. Hi. Hello. How are you? I don't know of many women that are more badass than you, I will say. So not that my opinion is oh anything, but I second in style's opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. That's very sweet. You are so welcome. How's your day going? Good. Yeah. Just starting over here. Um, but it's good so far. Amazing. And you are based now in Orange County. Where are you from? Um, I grew up in the Seattle area, um, and then moved to Orange County in high school. And then, um, after college lived in LA for a number of years and now we're back in Orange County for family. It all comes full circle. Yeah. One of our favorite questions to start the show with is what was little Blythe like? Oh, that's fun. Um, little Blythe was um, kind of quiet, but mischievous. Um, I loved the book and movie Harriet the Spy. Like I had my own spy journal. Yeah. I would like just spy on people or, you know, loved, um, kind of seeing what everyone else was up to looking for something interesting. Um, loved writing my own stories and, um, drawing comics and, Um, I really lived in my head, you know, coming up with, yeah, coming up with stories and little fantasies and my childhood, I'm the youngest of four. And so we did a lot of road tripping, a lot of driving, lots of time in the car. And so a lot of my childhood memories are just like looking out the car window, the backseat window, just like daydreaming. I find that I do that as an adult, not that I'm daydreaming <laughs> while, not that I'm daydreaming sure. while I'm driving, but I just feel like people, someone asked me this week, you know, what kind of music do you listen to in the car? What podcast do you listen to? I said, I don't, I listen to silence because silence is so loud. And that's where, when all the creativity and the juices are flowing, you get all the pings and, you know, that's sacred time. Definitely. There's something like really, really sacred about silence. It's so rare to find silence in the world today. Amen. And so many distractions. What was your first intro to, I say entrepreneurship because, you know, your organization is run like a business, but also philanthropic work. What was your first introduction to that world? 
I learned about the issue of human trafficking while I was in college and it, it stopped me in my tracks that in a way that no other issue had, like, I just felt this like sense of personal urgency. I've got to do something about this. Um, and at the same time, or, you know, in the very next moment, I guess I felt this immediate sense of powerlessness because like, what could I possibly do? This is a huge, huge issue. And I am just a college student without a lot of money, resources, influence, and, um, really didn't know where I was going like professionally at that point, but really didn't see myself in the nonprofit world. Um, or as a, an entrepreneur or business owner, um, anything like that business founder. And so, um, you know, it really, it took several years to unravel like, or unfold the journey. Um, because what happened was I, um, I started this like fun, quirky style challenge also while I was in college, um, where, I just like on a whim decided to try wearing a dress every day for a month. And, um, it was definitely just like a way to break up the days and add creativity to my life since I was just like buried in academia and it happened to be the month of December. And I'm pretty sure the first time I said like, Oh, I'm only wearing dresses in December. I, I was like, Oh, dresses in December, dress ember, like came up with that pun and loved it. Um, and did it and had fun, but never planned on doing it again. And then the next year, my, some of my friends wanted to do it. And the year after that, my friend's friends wanted to do it. Um, and so I guess to like long story short, to answer your question, the way I kind of launched into the entrepreneurial journey is seeing like, oh, this idea that I came up with just like totally on a whim is growing beyond myself, beyond my immediate circle. Um, it's not just my friends humoring me, like people like this and I've got to do something with this. So that was like the initial spark of like, Oh, what more could this be? Um, and because I had been so interested in the issue of human trafficking, um, when I started thinking like, maybe this could be a fundraiser, some sort of campaign, um, when I thought about what issue to fundraise for, or like align dress number with, it was a very easy decision for me to align it with anti-trafficking. Um, and then from there, it just like blew my expectations out of the water. You know, like my, my huge and lofty goal was to raise $25,000 the first year. Um, and we ended up hitting that in three days and, um, chills. Yeah. And I mean, it was like, it was really, really wild. I went into it thinking like, this could really flop, you know, like we're, we're not doing anything particularly hard. We're just getting dressed. Like are people, are people really going to donate? You know, at the time the model was like run a marathon or bike across the state or like, you know, things that were like challenging fundraising activities in order to get people to donate. And it was like, okay, we're going to, we're going to put on a dress every day and, um, you know, hope, hope to bring some awareness and raise some money for this huge injustice, which also the like stark contrast between the two of like, you know, here we are twirling around in our dresses while this horrifying injustice is happening. And like, 
a criminal enterprise of exploitation is happening across the world. Um, so it felt really risky. It was like, oh, people like this could just totally flop. I could also get a lot of criticism for this. Um, and so then, yeah, putting it out into the world and saying like, fingers crossed, we're going to try to raise a few thousand dollars. Um, we ended up raising $165,000 that month. And so then going into the new year after the end of December, I was like, oh, this is a much bigger idea than I realized. And this goes like much farther than like my immediate three circles, you know, like this, this resonates with people. And I think, um, you know, 10 years in now, what I've seen is people, a lot of people feel the way that I felt, which Mm -hmm. is like, so passionate about this issue and so wanting to engage in a tangible way. Um, and yet feeling powerless because they don't have the resources or the money or influence, or maybe the time to do much. They're in a, in a career that's completely unrelated. And so Dressember has given even the busiest person a really easy and fun way to make a significant impact in, in the issue of anti-trafficking. Well, I am very excited to share that I will be participating this year. I actually find myself, I mean, I'm, my aesthetic, um, definitely fares on like the androgynous, more like glam Tom girl kind of, you know, kind of an aesthetic and I have beautiful dresses in my closet, but I wear pants like 24 seven. So I think it'll also give me an excuse to actually, I'm doing this exercise also this year where I actually use all the clothes that are in my closet. And so when you um, mentioned it yesterday, I was like, you know, this is a great exercise for me too. Um, And just another way for me to support you from afar. So I'm very excited to be participating. I'm so happy to hear that. That's I'm going to have so much fun watching you and I I hope you have a lot of fun participating. And um, We did a number of years ago, probably five years ago at this point, we added ties Mm -hmm. as an option. So, um, definitely want your dresses to get some wear if that's where you're feeling drawn, but also the, the tie route is a fun one that I've done a couple, a couple years ago, I did a month of ties and it was just really fun doing like different, like, you know, like the pussy bow or like the scarf tie, the ascot I've seen some really cool, like jewelry ties, like a pearl, like necktie or like a metal necktie. So there's a lot of fun. Like you can kind of, you can do a mix. Like people are like today I'm wearing a dress and tomorrow I'm wearing a tie. So, um, it's very like, choose your own adventure, you know, whatever you're more comfortable in or, or feel more challenged by, or, or think that you can make a bigger impact by. So, so excited. I love it. I love a style challenge. So this will, this will be so fun. And and also just, just do everything in my power to support you. When you did your first fundraising event with a goal of 25,000, where were you in your professional career? Were you still in college? Had you graduated? Um, because I know that your first exercise of wearing dresses for a month, that came, that was kind of an earlier stage of something that you didn't realize what it would morph into, but when did the fundraising piece come into play? Yeah. Yeah. I, I started the style challenge, um, when I was in grad school and then when I decided to turn it into a campaign, um, I was 
working full-time in LA for a trend forecasting company, mm-hmm. um, on the business side as an account manager. So I would meet with, um, the creative teams at different, you know, clothing and, um, I mean, mainly, ma- mainly fashion apparel brands, but, um, you know, anyone who makes a product, um, any company you can think of who is making a product, um, needs to know the trends about a year or two in advance. So, um, yeah, I would get to meet with those creative teams and just walk them through the, the website and make sure they knew where to access relevant reports. Um, and it was really interesting. Like my favorite part of that job was the material, the information that, um, I had access to and, and got to walk teams through, but at the same time, it was very much like a business role, a non-creative role. And, um, it was, you know, I kind of felt like a cog in a very, you know, not like, not like the biggest corporate machine, but I kind of felt like a cog in the machine. (laughs) Sure. You know, just show up, meet your quota, like keep your, like make your monthly numbers and, and you're fine. Totally. Totally. How long did it take for you while you were working at your other job to go, Oh, this needs my full-time attention. Yeah. So I started, I turned a dress number into a campaign in 2013. Um, so that was our first fundraising season and early 2014, I knew, um, like, oh, this is, this is going to be big. Like this is, I need to dream bigger. And so that's when I, um, filed 501c3 paperwork and hired an accountant and, um, kind of leveled up our fundraising platform that we were having people use. Um, so I, I started dreaming about devoting all of my working hours toward it pretty early on. Um, it, it remained a side hustle, you know, labor of love during my, my nights and weekends and sometimes lunch breaks for the next three years, two and a half years. Um, you know, for the, for nonprofits, I mean, I'm a pretty like cautious person as it is, but also like for a nonprofit budget, like even though we're bringing in a million dollars, like, you know, 80% of that immediately turns around and goes towards, you know, programmatic efforts. So we don't have a huge amount left for operations and hiring. So I had to be really patient. I mean, I eventually came on part-time in 2016 and, um, so left my full-time job, came on part-time and then took an additional part-time job as a counseling center, um, administrator kind of, you know, like front office admin. Um, and then it was another, year and a half that I was part-time before I was able to come on full-time in 2017. Like, so it was like early 2016 to like late 2017. Anyway. That's amazing. I think I love talking about like the inner workings and the actual timelines of businesses on the show, because I think there's a lot of, um, chatter, especially on the internet of like, get rich quick or like become a millionaire in two hours with this program. And when people actually learn what it takes um, and the time that it takes and how precious the um, possessing the quality of patience is when you're building something, um, 
it's invaluable. Yeah. Yeah. I had to really, um, I had to really be patient. I also had to ask for a lot of help. Um, there were a lot of things I didn't know how to do. I didn't know how to build a website. I didn't, um, certainly didn't know how to do accounting. And so that, I mean, like I said, that was my first hire was to contract an accountant. Cause, um, I mean, any business, you don't want to be messing up your finances, but especially a nonprofit where anyone can see them. Um, you just, those need to be in order and the responsibility. I took the responsibility really seriously of like, you know, people are giving in good faith. Um, and then, yeah, I, I totally agree with you that like, I, I have always benefited, especially early in my journey from, um, books or interviews or just people that will share like kind of the nuts and bolts, as opposed to like, you know, here are the five limiting beliefs that are keeping you from achieving your full potential. Like there's value in that, but it's, you know, there's just nothing, nothing like practical advice for getting these things started. And also just the actual experience and doing it and screwing up and then doing something else and pivoting and then messing up again and learning and learning and learning never ends. Yeah. There's something really, I think really beautiful too, about the naivete of starting out of like, you know, I always think of, um, in legally blonde where she's like, you know what, like it's hard (laughs) totally starting a profit or like launching a podcast, like what, like it's hard. And then, I mean, the, there's the expression, like we would never do like most of the things that we do if we knew, if we understood how much work they actually take. Totally. Like, you know, once you get started, I, I think like breaking things into steps of like, okay, well, what, you know, what's obviously the end goal. And then what are all the things that need, sometimes I have to work backwards. Like what are all the things that need to happen in order to get to that end goal? And what's the timeline that all of those things need to happen on in order for that end goal to happen by a certain time. And that's kind of how I have worked. I love that. Can you walk us through what the 501c3 process is? Like what one does to register their business as such? Yeah. So 501c3 certification is what most nonprofits, um, well, most nonprofits that are, um, bringing in above 250,000 are required to, to register. Um, I think if you're below that, you can choose not to, um, to simplify. Um, so turns out anyone could just pick up the paperwork and, and do it themselves and, and file and pay the fee. I forget. I mean, it's maybe a couple hundred dollars to, to file, Um, and then it'll take several months to hear back. You know, I was told like anywhere from six to nine months. It also kind of depends. I mean, that was, that was 10 years ago. So it depends on how many other people are filing and, you know, the, the traffic of, um, state by state, those, those filings, what I chose to do, um, was hire a, a lawyer who does this for a living, like, and just kind of relayed to him, like, all the information or, you know, kind of downloaded to him, all the information about what I was doing, our mission, what I was building. Um, and then he filed for me, um, because I did not want to risk waiting six to nine months to find out I had done something wrong in the application and having to do it again. Um, I think I applied in January or February of 2014, and it was approved in September just in time for the next campaign season. 
So um, the, the process, including the, the lawyer and the fees to file and um, you know, in the process, you also, before you file as a 501c3, you have to register as a business, as an LLC in our case, I think, um, in the state of California. And, um, so there were, you know, various filing fees and then the, the legal fee, and I think it ended up being around $1,800 total. Um, so that was what the process looked like for me there's been so many like keywords and key phrases that you've put out just because our worlds are so different. So I'm like crazily taking notes over here. Like, Oh my gosh, this is so interesting. Like I need to look up this a little bit more. I'm just, I'm learning so much, even on the show, you have such a vast and impressive press list. Do you have a publicist slash where did those come from? Yeah. Thank you. We, um, I mean, some of it was organic because we have such a, um, We've had the incredible, I mean, okay, going back, I, I could not have predicted the community that I was creating, you know, that like tens of thousands of people who are passionate about this issue, who are going to talk about it and who have connections in their own ways to different outlets. We've, we've gotten a, a good amount of press, especially like on the local level, um, nationally, just through our fundraisers who, um, are passionate about how Dressember has allowed them to engage in a new way and a fun way with this issue that they care about so deeply. Um, and then we also have received a lot of press, um, from like some bigger outlets through publicist relationships we've had in the past. So I think like 2018 and 2019, we invested pretty heavily in PR and, um, we did kind of a project, um, a, a project PR, like a, a, a smaller PR project with the same publicist in 2020. Um, so yeah. When you hired a publicist, because it really does take your business to the next level. How did you see a change in your organization and really what came of it? Cause it is a big, a big investment. And a lot of times for, um, you know, a lot of companies that are or organizations that are starting out, it's a bit of a sticker shock to see yeah. that <clears throat> because it oftentimes takes several months to get things rolling before you really see like a major hit and what, um, like the benefit of press. Um, but how did it change the company for you? Yeah. I think one of the first things I noticed was, um, it, it seemed to like legitimize what we were doing or, um, our model. Like I, I, I sensed a lot of people seeing like, oh, wow, Forbes, like, okay, you are doing something really big, you know, like, um, I want to say that I'm not the type of person that like needs to see press in order to be impressed. But I think we all on some level are like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like this, like this outlet is recognizing what you're doing. And, and so like, it must be great. Or like, you know, I've always thought it was pretty great, but now it, it must be really great. Um, so that was kind of one of the first things I saw was like, yeah, the, the legitimization. And then I think over time, what it's done is, um, give us a lot of like name recognition and mm -hmm. brand recognition 
definitely within the anti-trafficking space. Um, but also I would say beyond it a, a little bit, um, definitely not like at the same level within the wider, like fashion space, but, um, I do think we are one of the organizations people think of when they're thinking of like fashion related nonprofits. Um, cause there aren't very many, maybe there are more now, but in the last maybe five years ago, there just weren't very. Sure. I think the great thing about press is that once your brand gets that press, you have it forever. It's like a diploma. It's like completing a course or having a certificate, right? Like once you have it, you always have it and you can use that to leverage your brand in any capacity. Like it, it, that's yours to own forever and ever. Yeah. Especially with online media, cause it just mm-hmm. it lives forever and you can always link to it. Totally. What is your personal schedule? Mm-hmm. Especially because I'm curious because, you know, you spend 25% of your working hours devoting to those relationships, which is beautiful. I mean, so much of my business is also relationship building, right? That's really, really important. What does the rest of your schedule and regimen look like? How do you create your day so that you can be this amazing CEO that you are? Yeah. I mean, it's the thing that's interesting with dress Ember is our model is so, um, you know, depending on the month or depending on the quarter, my days can look totally different. You know, like a day in November looks so different than a day in April. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of love that. Like there's a lot of variety in what I, what I do. Um, there's also a lot of like build up to the year end and then kind of a, an inevitable letdown when, when January, February comes, it's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> like the wave is over. I kind of miss it. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, as, as my team has grown, so there's six of us now, um, I, it's been really wonderful to get to delegate things to other people. And like, you know, um, like I, I hardly touch our social media anymore, Mm -hmm. which like in the early days, it was just me on there every day, all day. Um, and so as I've like taken things off my plate, it's been a journey to figure out like, okay, well, what are the essential things that need to stay on my plate that only I can do, or like, you know, that I can do best or that I need to do. And so, yeah, that continues to be the, the board stewardship. It is like leading my staff and making sure they have the support and the resources they need. It is, um, cultivating relationships with our, um, with our advocate fundraisers and with our donors. Um, and then it's kind of the high level strategy of like, where is this, where is this ship going? What are, what's needed in order to keep us going and get us there? What is the, like the, the newest, the new pie in the sky dream, um, which is a fun challenge to like, try to dream a little bit bigger every year. Um, so, so yeah, this time of year, my days are, um, a lot of, I'm, I'm giving a lot of staff support because we have October is probably, I mean, September, September, October are actually our busiest months of the year. 
Um, because by the time November, December comes, it's just like a well-oiled machine and we're just like riding it out and, and responding to what's happening. But September, October, we are finalizing new resources. We're, um, finishing the podcast, our, our new podcast that we just launched. And then every, like pretty much everything new, new merch, new resources, new statistics, new graphics, the podcast, like everything new kind of launches the first week of October. So, um, that is what makes September so crazy. And I'm very hands-on, like, that's when I take some hats back as needed of like, okay, our graphic design intern is completely overwhelmed. And so is my staff member who can do a little bit of this. So I'm going to also do some graphic design or like, I'm going to also help with, um, I mean the podcast I've been, I've been so involved in a really like from like logistically, like I've had to learn about podcast hosts and like com- compare and, and vet different podcast host platforms and, um, and then like learn by doing, which has been really thrilling. Like it's been a while since I've had a new project where like, I have no idea what I'm doing and I'm going to like, I'm going to figure it out as I go, but that's the sort of thing I'm, I'm doing right now. Does that kind of answer your question? Or are you wanting more like how many hours a night do you sleep and how many hours a day are you actually working? Any and all of it. I think it's all relevant. I think it's so interesting to study how different people tick and what makes people tick and how they function throughout the day. Because, you know, I think the standard nine to five work day has kind of been debunked, especially, you know, during and post COVID um, because I think people have become more savvy. So, you know, and also taking inventory of like, what's important, what fuels you knowing that that will help you show up better for work. So just curious in general. Yeah. I love what COVID has done to the nine to five or like, I mean, I know some, I was reading something about how some companies are like installing spyware on their employees, computers or something ridiculous. I love like on the flip side of it, it's like, Oh, finally, like, are we finally treating adults like adults, you know, like people, like, are we finally trusting people to do their jobs? Um, it doesn't always take 40 hours in a week to do your job or like, I mean, especially for our, for our like project cycle, it can take, you know, some weeks are 30 hour weeks. And then some weeks this time of year, it's like 50, 60 hour weeks, you know, it just like, it has a more of a fluctuation. So when, when we in the past or like societally, I don't know, culturally the, the, the value of like, or the expectation that, yeah, you would be like clock in clock out, kind of chained to your desk nine to five and have no integration of any other part of your life. Um, I mean, that's another thing I love about COVID is it's like such forced kind of chaotic integration where like, yeah, everyone's home. (laughs) My, my kids are going to come in. My dog is going to bark. Like things are going to be happening. Like I'm wearing sweats below the screen, you know, like just the, like life is life is actually life has actually always been happening. We've just been very, the expectation or like the practice of hiding it and keeping these things separate, um, is really kind of strange now, now that we're three years into like just giving each other more grace of like, no, these things bleed into each other as they should. Um, so yeah, for me, I mean, I am someone who like needs nine hours of sleep to function. Um, 
So, and I have a three-year-old. So, do you um, really? I didn't know that you became a mama. Yeah, yeah. I have a three-year-old boy. Um, Oh my gosh, he's incredible. He's so much fun. He just keeps getting more fun. Um, but I'm exhausted all the time. And so like we are in bed, my husband and I, like we're in bed by nine, you know, like we're those people and like thrilled about it. You know, like it's like, Ooh, nine Oh five tonight. Like, I mean, it's, you know, we might not fall asleep until 10, but rarely after 10, honestly. So, um, yeah, I really, really value sleep. Um, and I am at a stage in life where I'm like, yeah, I remember seeing this tweet that was like, you know, when I was a kid, I thought alcohol, no, when I was a kid, I thought coffee was the most adult drink. And then when I was a teenager, I thought alcohol was the most adult drink. And now that I'm like in my thirties, I think, or I have realized water is the most adult drink. A hundred percent. Try to drink a ton of water. Um, so, I mean, yeah, that's kind of more like on the like biological side of what my day looks like. Um, try to eat well, or like if I'm gonna not eat well, try not to do that very often, you know. I just think also it's the journey of becoming more self aware. Well, yeah, and I, I just find I don't know if you find this, but like I'm, yeah, I'm late 30s, like I. I just can't get away with some of that stuff anymore. Like if I, if I sleep seven hours or less, like I can do that one night. If I do it a second night, like I'm going to pay for it big time. Like I'm either going to get sick or my body will just sleep through any level of noise. Um, pretty much as soon as I turned 30, it was like, oh, you can no longer just sleep on any couch or floor or like forget red eyes, you know, like, um, you need to be in your own bed sleeping nine hours if you're going to feel like normal. Um, so I feel like, yeah, just physically I, I pay for things, you know, like I'll get 100%. sick. Or I'll, yeah. hundred percent. But that's also self-awareness. You're like, I know if I don't clock in these hours, like I know what the outcome is going to be. And I'm going to learn from that. I feel like, you know, I definitely didn't need to sleep as much during my twenties, but I also kind of disregarded what my body needed like the consequence wasn't as in my face. I'm like, oh, I can like yeah, supplement this with just extra energy drinks and it'll be fine. But now, oh no, sleep is everything. Yeah. 100%. What is your pie in the sky dream? You mentioned that earlier and I know that it's a, it's a sliding scale. It's always a moving post, but what is that currently for you? Yeah, I think I'm trying to figure that out. I mean- December has grown so much. We have, um, we have 20 organizations that we're partnering with across the U S and across the world. We're giving millions of dollars in funding towards really incredible programs to protect vulnerable people, to speed up intervention times for trafficked, um, children and adults. Um, and then on the aftercare side, we're, resourcing a lot of really incredible trauma therapy programs and, um, empowerment programs to like really, um, not just allow people to recover on an emotional and, you know, psychological level, but also get to a new place of economic stability and economic opportunity, you know, through, um, we have a survivor scholarship fund where we provide unrestricted 
academic or vocational funding for survivors who want to pursue um, a degree or a certification or some sort of training in order to work towards economic stability. I mean, economic stability or economic instability is, I think the, the more and more I'm in this work, it is, if not the number one vulnerability factor, it's within the top, I would say the top two, honestly, it is what makes someone vulnerable to trafficking. It's what keeps someone vulnerable. It's what, um, often makes trafficking a cycle where someone is like, you know, they're trafficked, they are, they escape or come out of it, find a way out. Um, and then, and then end up back in it. Um, and so the way to either stop the cycle at the beginning or, um, keep it from repeating itself is through economic opportunity and, and financial stability. Um, so that has become like an increasingly important aspect of our work is like, how do we, um, how do we do that? <laughs> how do we do more of that? Um, that's huge in prevention. It's huge in aftercare and preventing, uh, re-victimization. Um, so I think, yeah, moving forward, it's just kind of continuing to dream like, okay, what are, what are newer, faster, smarter ways, more efficient ways of, of doing that on both ends. Um, and how do we, how do we continue to close these gaps where people are, are vulnerable? December reaches so many different people in the different focuses that you guys have within the organization. Can you speak to the diversity of your events and your, you know, one-on-one contact with survivors, um, to your fundraisers, to other sales channels? Cause there's, it's a, it's a very well-oiled machine, but there are a lot of different facets to it that I want people to understand. Yeah. I think, you know, we, we are directly impacting or exist to impact people who are either vulnerable to trafficking or currently being trafficked or have been trafficked. Um, those, I mean, trafficking affects every race, nationality, income level. Um, it absolutely can happen to anyone. However, statistics show us over and over again, that the most vulnerable people are people of color, particularly black women and girls, as well as indigenous communities, women and girls, um, people who are, uh, living in poverty or below, um, you know, in a, in a low income community, people who are kids who are disconnected from the educational systems. Um, they're either in and out of school or not in school at all. Um, kids in foster care are incredibly vulnerable, um, and kids who have any involvement in any sort of, um, justice system, whether it's like a juvenile justice system or, you know, any, any criminal justice system. Um, so those are, you know, statistically, you know, my child statistically is much, 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 much less likely to be trafficked than a child living in any of those circumstances. And especially one who's living in multiple, you know, you take a like low income black community or a a black girl in foster care, 
And she's just like the most vulnerable of anyone in the country, I would say. Um, so we're, we're impacting and, um, and working with that, you know, those populations. And then we are also on like the fundraiser side. Um, we have a, a big, um, a big part of our like fundraiser base is like young college students or like high school students even, or moms with young kids. Um, so I'd say like most of our fundraisers are somewhere between 15 and 35. Most are women, although we have an increasing, um, male identifying turnout, uh, which is awesome. Um, and so there are people who either, you know, I think for students or younger, like, like teenagers or young adults they're um, I think there's a passion that comes when you can identify with like sort of the target age range of like, we think about like particularly sex trafficking. It's like, okay, it's um, most victims are around 13 years old and kind of the like um, commercial marketability of like a girl, if, if you're a trafficker, it's, it's gross. It's like teenager, young twenties, and then they sort of age out. So I think there is something that like resonates with the students or like, yeah, high school, college students who are participating as fundraisers. Um, and then for moms with young kids, it's like, you know, if they're working or if they're home with their kids, like just wanting to do something to model, um, to model advocacy for your kids to also like educate your kids in an age appropriate way on what's happening, um, to express that part of your identity in a season where, I mean, I'm a mom and it's like so much of my, my, you know, my identity, I'm a lot of things, but being a mom is a big, it, it's like a very consuming part of my identity. And so I appreciate what Dressember allows me. And I think other moms to do, which is like, Oh, like I'm also someone who advocates for, you know, for others. And I'm also someone who makes time for this. And I'm also someone who wants to use my, the platform, the resources that I do have, however much or little they may be, um, in order to, to stand up for things that I, that I care about. Um, and then on the like donor supporter side, there's a lot of overlap with the fundraisers. A lot of our fundraisers are also very generous supporters. And I love that. It's like, yeah, why don't ask someone to donate if you're not already invested, you know, if you don't have skin in the game. Um, but then there are a lot of donors who are maybe, um, I mean, we have donors of all ages, but just like generally maybe over 40 people who are like, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do the style challenge, but I will absolutely support the cause and support like the fact that, um, I mean, especially if it's like a high school or college student, like, you know, people want to support the fact that, um, the next generation are advocating in this way. So yeah, we have a very diverse, um, like you said, a very diverse, like audience and community and, um, community that we're impacting and working with. And, um, it's, it's a real privilege. It's amazing. Let's talk about your podcast because you just launched a podcast this week. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. It's called things that survivors wish you knew a, distra a dis 
Oh my gosh. Things that survivors wish you knew address Ember podcast. Excuse me. If you guys want to search that on any of the podcast platforms, but please tell us about what prompted you to start this and also the process because on this podcast, you speak to actual survivors, people who've been affected by the work that you do. Yeah. Yeah. We had thought, we had thought for a while about launching a podcast. Um, one of the things that, you know, in addition to like fundraising and encouraging people to fundraise a big part of the work that we're doing is education and making sure that people, um, understand what human trafficking is and is not, because unfortunately there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of sensationalism around the issue. Um, and a lot of like fear mongering. Mm-hmm. Um, so we every year provide, um, all sorts of resources for our fundraisers. Like here are 31 statistics for the 31 days of, of December of dress Ember, along with graphics that you can post. And so we are giving people like, here are things, easy things you can post every day, but you're also going to read them and learn from them. You know, that's a big part of it too. It's like, okay, we're educating you and then you are educating others. And there's a responsibility in that. And with the podcast, um, I definitely have seen that as like a really powerful channel for reaching people. And I wanted it to be a powerful educational tool, but just wasn't sure how to go about that and, and suspected it would take some work, you know, I was like, okay, I think, I think podcasting, you know, takes some time and energy. Um, and then what happened is last January, we, um, January is a funny month because it's, it's well, on the one hand, it's national human trafficking awareness month or prevention month in the U S. Um, but it's also like the end of the end of December, dress Ember and the start of the new year, like people mentally want to just like, okay, the year is over. I'm done with everything in that year and I'm starting new. And we have like, well, no, our, our campaign continues. And there's a lot of like, stay with us (laughs) type communication that we're putting out. Um, and like national human trafficking prevention month, like we just want to keep people engaged. And so we had this series of a short series that we did starting in January this year, that was things survivors wish you knew. And it was a series of, I think three blog post interviews, and then a, a virtual event where we had, um, so each, each of the blog post interviews was with a survivor of trafficking and they shared what they wish people knew, um, first person about, about human trafficking. Um, and then it led to a, a virtual event, like a, a zoom webinar where the three survivors and one of our staff members had a conversation about the things that they had written about and where they had overlaps, the common themes. And we had such high engagement from that series, um, especially it being January and engagement always being down and being a struggle. It was just like, oh my gosh, like people are really responding to this. Amazing. What else can we do with this? Um, it, it was like this, you know, proof or reminder that people want to hear from survivors and they, they still, they want to learn. (laughs) And it was actually like really encouraging. Um, so I think as early as may we started, well, 
So that all happened January, February. And then March, we started working on this idea for a podcast series. Like, okay, what if we did a, a series, we could do a season, like a 10 episode season where we had a conversation with a different survivor guest every episode and, um, started kind of casting the net within our community and contacts to see who would be a good fit for this. Um, one thing I'm super passionate about is like, um, survivors have gone through a tremendous, tremendous amount of trauma. So it's really important to approach them, um, at the right point in their journey. When an opportunity like this is not like, you know, if you are, if you are asking them to tell their story fresh into their recovery, they're probably going to tell it just because they think that they have to, in order to continue receiving, um, services, or that there's some sort of expectation and then they end up feeling re-traumatized or like re-exploited. Um, and so we made sure that we were asking people who were far enough along in their journey and that a conversation like this would be empowering to them and not exploitative in any way. We offered them complete anonymity if they wanted that, um, in, you know, we won't share your name. We won't share any identifying details. Um, we offered them compensation, which is huge. Um, I don't think any, you should, no one should ever work with a survivor and not offer them payment. That's, that's like a standard. You should, you shouldn't ask anyone to do work without paying them, but especially a survivor. Um, because again, the, the re-exploitation where they've come from a model of exploitation where, um, you're going to do this thing in order to make me money mm. and then, Hey, come be on my podcast to make me ultimately to make me money, you know, to fundraise for my organization. Um, it's a different flavor of exploitation, but it's still there. So there were a lot of, we were very careful and very conscientious about how we went about asking people. And then, um, and then how we treated them throughout the whole process and how we checked up with them afterwards and, you know, offered them full freedom to like, if you, you know, some people process externally and like, oh, I really shouldn't have said all that, or I wish I hadn't said this. And, um, we let them listen to the episodes. Um, and I, I'm just, I'm blown away by this series because we, we spent all summer recording these conversations and they, are incredible and they're powerful and they're important and they are not really by and large about what happened to any one of these individuals. We asked none of them to tell any part of their story. Some of them chose to tell parts of it because it was relevant to what we were talking about. Um, but I think a, another big part of working with survivors is, um, not asking them, you know, not putting that pressure on them, and not expecting them, not only seeing value in them for the trauma that they went through. Like we're not here to shock and awe people or like, that's not what we're, you know, about or what we're selling, you know? And so instead these conversations were about, um, the ways survivors, the ways that these survivors have felt empowered or disempowered, um, often after like coming out of trafficking. Um, so I actually think the, the series is going to be, I hope most powerful for others working in the anti-trafficking space to hear what directly from survivors, what's working, what's not working, what we need to do better. Um, 
I mean, a huge thing that kept coming up is the lack of, um, survivor representation in leadership across anti-trafficking organizations. Do you think of like pretty much any other movement, whether it's the domestic violence movement or, um, black lives matter, like most movements are led by the people people. affected. Exactly. Yeah. And anti-trafficking is, is not that way at all. Um, and the ways that survivors are called upon is again, like, will you tell your, your trauma story at our gala so that we can raise $200,000 or, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to put you on, um, on an advisory board so that we can say that we're survivor informed or, um, I mean, even the ways that Dressember tries to work with survivors, like it's not enough. I'll be the first, I, I was super challenged by these conversations of like, Oh, like we need to be employing survivors. Like we need, we have, yeah, we need survivors on our board of directors. We need survivors touching every part of our organization. So, um, anyway, I'm really excited about this series and yeah, episode one just dropped this last Monday and we're dropping nine more every Monday through, I think it gets us right up into December. Um, and the process of creating a podcast was so much work. And, um, you know, speaking of the, like, what, like it's hard, um, yeah, we figured it out, but it was a lot, a lot of work and we spent all summer doing it and into fall up to our October 3rd launch, like by the minute, you know, and like some episodes that are coming still need to be completely finalized. So, um, it's very much like a labor of love and like worth the effort, but it's been a lot of work. Well, congratulations on the launch. Thanks. So huge. Aside from listening to and downloading your podcast, where can we find you and how can we support Dressember? Yeah. So Dressember, um, our main channel is Instagram. You can follow us on Instagram. Um, we're on our website, dressember.org. Um, I'm told we have an increasing TikTok presence as well. Thanks to some of our like Gen Z, uh, interns. <laughs> um, and yeah, those are probably the best places. And, um, I mean, definitely our website, dressember.org for more information on like, how does this actually work? How do you raise money in a dress? Um, you know, where are the resources? We have a, a blog with like hundreds and hundreds of articles as well that you can search by keyword of like, oh, I'm interested in how foster care overlaps with trafficking or the, you know, the apparel industry with labor trafficking, mm-hmm. we have a, a wealth of, of educational resources there. You are such a light. You are such an inspiration. You are an angel to so many people and such an impressive human. Thank you so much for carving out time for coming on this podcast. You are so incredible and it is it is a true privilege to watch what you're doing and to be a part of what you're doing. It's, it's unparalleled truly. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. And and thank you for having me. It's been really great talking with you and I appreciate the opportunity to share. You are so, so welcome. Well, folks, that interview was just incredible. A huge thank you to Blythe for coming on the show. Another thank you to our hosts at Dash Radio and producers at Island City Media. If you liked this episode, you can listen to it again and again on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please leave a review so we can continue bringing you the people and conversations that you love just like Blythe.
Lastly, if you want to connect with me offline, you can find me at Marin Costello Radio on, on Instagram and MarinCostello.com. Have a beautiful day. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next week with another amazing guest.